In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, in the beginning, God created everything. And he created it all out of nothing. Like, really think about that for a moment. I mean, David was so right when he wrote in Psalm 145, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Seriously, can you fathom out of nothing? Can you fathom always existing? Can you fathom all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, never tired, never weary, never sin, never overwhelmed, never anxious? Created everything. And review on creation here, right? Day one, earth, space, time, and light. Day two, atmosphere. Day three, dry land and plants. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, sea creatures and birds. And day six, land animals and man for your review. In Genesis 2, we read that on day six, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden east of Eden, and there he put the man he had formed to work it and to take care of it. But even though Adam seemed to have everything that he needed, not only food and water, but he had a a paradise to live in and a purpose to live for, to work and take care of the garden, Yet despite all that, God says in verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper. Someone say, I will make a helper. Suitable for him. And then we read, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Horse, hippopotamus, cow. Dog. So the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds in the air, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. Maple Grove, at the very beginning of human history, God created and instituted marriage. He created and instituted the family. And listen, Adam and Eve became a family in Genesis 2 long before they had any children. Understand, a family is formed when a man and woman are united on their wedding day. So when are you going to have a family? We already did. (laughs) We already are. We're married. Get it? Good. The man said, and this is our first wedding ceremony in human history. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they, and they felt no shame. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence. We pray that you will you'll bless our time together. God, I pray that we will honor you with our heart, with our minds, and with our response this morning, God. Holy Spirit, just move and speak to us and guide us. And I pray, God, that you'll enable me to speak exactly what you want me to say in the exact way you want me to say it. Father, our hope and our confidence is in you and in your word. 
that endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in this verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew, and i got to tell you, it's been a great study for me. And even though I've been doing this Jesus thing for 42-plus years and this pastor thing for 30-plus years, I have learned so many new and awesome things these last 20 weeks, and I know there's much more learning to come, and I am pretty excited about it. Now, where we are currently in our journey is unpacking Jesus' radical manifesto about what kingdom life is all about, a.k.a. also known as the Sermon on the Mount, which has proven to be a more powerful, penetrating, and richer conversation than we could ever have imagined. And here's the deal. What Jesus is basically saying in the Sermon on the Mount is, hey, here is what life is like in my kingdom. It's about being a certain kind of person. It's about the poor in spirit. It's about the meek. It's about those who mourn. It's about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's about those who are peacemakers. It's about the merciful. And it's about having a positive and very much needed impact on this dark, broken, upside-down, corrupt world, not by sitting on the sidelines and bemoaning how terrible this world is, but by being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Being this kingdom is also about living out a life that's distinct and different from those in the world around us. And what we saw last week is that living in Jesus' kingdom, life is so much deeper than simply avoiding committing outward acts like murder and adultery. Instead, it's about getting control of the anger and the lust that can often reside inside of us. And when those things reside inside of us, they eventually will leak out from us. Yes, this kingdom is about being, having, and living. Get it? Good. And before we dive into our conversation for this morning, what Jesus says about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, I want to remind you of a few things we need to keep in mind as we strive to understand what Jesus is actually teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, let's not be of those who loosen or relaxes what God has already said and bound. Anyone who sets aside, anyone who loosens one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Number two, let's not be of those who base their attitudes and their beliefs more on what they have heard from others. You have heard that it was said than what Jesus actually has already said. And as I said last week, one of my greatest concerns for the church today is that far too many of his followers know more about what other people say than what Jesus says about certain issues. And I understand it is so dangerous to bank your life on what I say, or what some other pastor says, or what your friends say, what your parents say, or what Oprah or culture says. Number three, never forget what God has always wanted from his people from the very beginning. It's for them to surrender and commit to him fully their heads, their hearts, and their hands. You see, it's not just about knowing the right things. It's not just about feeling the right way. It's not just about doing the right things, but it's about our heart and our head and our hands being integrated. Jesus said, for unless your righteousness surpasses, someone say surpasses, that the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not inherit the king of heaven. 
You see the natural overflow of a head and heart that are knowing and, and feeling and respond to what God has said and what God is doing in this world are hands and feet that are loving and moving, calling out and providing for justice and compassion and relief and goodness and grace and love and mercy and faithfulness wherever we go. And fourth, also keep in mind that a certain amount is kind of like a second Sinai. I understand Matthew has been intentional up to this point in his gospel, not only to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but that Jesus is also like a second Moses. In Matthew 2, 15, he says that he was called out of Egypt. In Matthew 3, it says that Jesus passed through the waters of baptism like the Red Sea. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, like Israel, was tested in the wilderness. And then Matthew 5, Jesus presents God's truth alongside a mountainside. You see, it's been God's plan, both Old and New Testament, his plan is about delivering, rescuing, and redeeming the people from bondage, making them his own, and setting them apart as a people distinct from those in the world for his glory and their good, telling them, as my delivered, rescued, and redeemed people, this is how you are to behave. In this second sign, I God's people have a new power, the Holy Spirit, have a new focus, living from our salvation, not for our salvation, which enables us to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees in regards to areas like anger and, and lust. Get it? Good. Okay, take a deep breath. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It has been said, remember last week we Noted that this phrase that has been said is Jesus' way of saying, hey, I'm not setting myself against the law that I came to fulfill, not to abolish, that I said not even a single letter or stroke of the pen will disappear, but I'm setting myself up against a faulty, distorted interpretation of your religious leaders. You've heard it said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality makes her the victim of adultery. Anyone marries a divorced woman commits adultery. How you doing? Yeah. This morning we're going to strive to understand what Jesus and Scripture actually teach about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I want you to raise your hand, not yet, but raise your hand if you or one of your family members or one of your friends have had their life touched and impacted by divorce. Okay, it pretty much most of us. And listen, I know that this is a very painful topic for so many. Divorce causes emotional pain, confusion, hurt, heartache. It's difficult to deal with the loss of the spouse and children are significantly impacted by growing up in a divided home, not being able to be with both mom and dad at the same time. It's just so painful. And listen, I'm confident that unless... You've lived through a divorce personally, I have not, that it's really hard to fully understand the depth of that pain and the weight of those losses. And I'm so sorry. Now, I know that some people may be sitting in this room or online or deciding not to come today because this is a heavy, emotionally charged topic. And my goal today, as I put on a Facebook post, was is to bring hope, healing, and an understanding 
of what Jesus actually said about marriage and divorce. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to divorce, the church and pastors have, for the most part, from at least where my point of view, have taken three wrong approaches. Approach number one, divorce is pretty much the unforgivable sin that marks forever those who have experienced it as a second-class Christian at best. Let me tell you, I've talked to so many people over the years that have experienced that very thing and experienced this approach, and to say that that approach was hurtful and devastating to them is a massive understatement. Approach number two is, hey, divorce is just a part of life. I mean, some marriages just do not work out. And God's primary goal for his people is to be happy. And yet sometimes divorce is the best and quickest way to experience that happiness. Approach number three, which I think is the approach most churches and pastors take, is divorce is so painful for people, and the scriptures that speak about it are so hard to understand So let's avoid talking about it all together. And those who do take this approach, if they do talk about divorce, only mention it in passing. Today I must confess that for the most part, I have taken approach number three. Because divorce is painful. And because the scriptures on the surface are so very confusing and hard to understand. Like, a first glance at Matthew 5 seems to be saying that, hey, you know what? If, if your wife or your spouse teaching you, you know, even one time, you're free. But if you're constantly being beaten and physically and emotionally abused, sorry. You're just bound with that person forever. I mean, that doesn't even sound right. Yeah, so I have taken the avoidance or the coward's approach to the subject of Divorce. Like I knew that what made sense to me when I considered the character of God and what I was seeing in Scripture didn't support what I thought, hey, this is God's character. This is what it's got to be about. And listen, whenever this avoidance approach is taking, we leave families suffering, the pains of divorce, and marital hardship all by themselves. And they're left on their own to struggle with what Jesus said. (laughs) about divorce, or fall victim to approach number one. You're forever a sinner, and God really hates you. Or, hey, just get divorced. Everybody's doing it. And again, today, July 10, 2022, I both confess and repent sincerely. Taking the bonus approach. To a topic that has affected so many people so deeply and so personally. And all I can do is move forward. Amen? Now, I spent a lot of time studying this, more times than I can count. Reading scripture, studying commentaries, listening to teaching. On Thursday, I read an entire book written by a guy named David Instone Brewer. Never heard of this guy before, but kind of a Long-distance mentor of mine named Jim Johnson, former professor at Ozark Christian College, a pastor in Oklahoma. He mentioned the dude, says the dude's good. I said, well, Jim's a strong biblical scholar. If Jim says this guy's good, I need to check him out. And and I I put the information for this book in your your notes. If you don't have your notes, I have a picture of the book here. You may want to take a picture on your phone with this because you may want to pick this up and read it. It's 
It's an easy read. Like, again, I read it in one day. And Dr. Brewer, his name is so crazy. Dr. Instone Brewer, his PhD and expertise is in the area of Jewish culture and rabbinical teaching during the time of Christ, which is very helpful in understanding the historical context for what Jesus is teaching about divorce and what those who first heard him understood him to say. And listen, historical context is very important in understanding what the Bible is actually saying. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about women having to cover their heads when they're coming to church, right? Their historical context is that in that culture, women who left their head covered were seen and known to be prostitutes, right? And that's the context. Now, people can cover that they want to, but the cultural context helps us understand it. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read that, you know, a very misinterpreted verse, you know, that an elder is to be the husband of one wife, right? There's one word for woman and wife in, in Greek. It's the word gune, and it, you translate depending on the context. You see, in that culture, it was very okay. It was okay, hey, you're married, but you can have many mistresses, and that's totally okay, totally acceptable, and what Paul is saying, hey, no, 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 my leaders in my church, no, that's not how we do things. You're to be a one-woman man. You're not to have eyes for other women. You're not to be with other women. You're to be a one-woman man. We get that from culture, right? Again, I study a lot. And much of what I've been sharing with you is pretty much new to me. Though it's always been there when you apply historical context and biblical context to the text. And again, I know that a topic as emotionally charged as this, that has so many different understandings, so many books written, so many debates over centuries, that I know I think that I can come up here and resolve every issue anyone's ever had with marriage and divorce. But listen, we can always continue the conversation, right? Any week we can continue the conversation we had on Sunday. But nevertheless, I do think that we can accomplish much good in our time remaining. I'm going to pray us into even deeper. Father, just help us. What we want to know is your truth. That's it. We don't want to invent new truth to follow. We want to follow your truth with our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let's do this. The kingdom, king of this kingdom, week 20, our conversation, marriage and divorce. And Encourage you to lean in, right? Because most of us raise our hands. Right? We know somebody. You say, well, I've never been divorced. Well, maybe you know somebody or you're going to know somebody that has questions. And we're going to use as our text Matthew 19, 1 through 12, instead of Matthew 5. And in Matthew 19, it has everything that Matthew 5 has, but it's a much lengthier discussion. It gives us even more depth in our meaning. Matthew chapter 19. However, before we go there, I want you to know that not only does God understand what it means to go through a divorce, but he actually has been through a divorce. You see, God is a divorcee. The prophet Jeremiah talked about that very thing in third chapter of his book, in verse 8. He said, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. Yet, I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah, remember when the kingdom divided, you had Israel in the north, ten tribes, Judah in the south, two tribes. Yet I, yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear 
And she also went out and committed adultery. God said, you know what? I had to divorce Israel because they were unfaithful. And Judah saw that happen, and they're going out, and they're doing the very same thing. Understand, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, God's relationship with Israel is often compared to a marriage. As it is in New Testament, right? The church is what? The bride of Christ, right? It's not a new concept. Now, the prophet Ezekiel was very interested in spelling out how God had kept all four of his marriage vows in Ezekiel chapter 16. I think I have a slide for this, if I'm not mistaken. Do I? Yeah. Here's what he says in here. He said, hey, you know, God loved Judah. God gave her food. And God gave her clothing fit for a queen. And, of course, God was faithful to her. Right? That was the vows he made. And he kept those vows. And, you know, store the four vows away in your brain because we're going we're gonna to access those a little bit later. But in contrast, Ezekiel tells us that Judah broke all her vows, broke these vows with God. Judah broke all four vows. She did not return God's love. She committed adultery with idols. She presented idols with the food that God had given to her. And she decorated idols with the clothing and jewels with which God had honored her. Yes, God is a divorcee. He, he divorced Israel Gave her a certificate of divorce, and now Judah was doing the very same things. Okay, now on to Matthew chapter 19. As this chapter opens up, it's about six months before the cross. We read this. When Jesus had finished saying these things. Someone say these things. things. Okay, what things? Well, the things he was talking about in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus teaches what you and I are commanded to do when somebody sins against us. Anybody ever sinned against you? (laughs) Let me tell you. What we're supposed to do is definitely something we should figure out because, I don't know if you figured this out yet, but sin often enters relationships. And listen, if a marriage is to survive, we need to figure out how to go through life sinning and confronting, repenting, rinse and repeat, right? Because it's going to happen again and again and again. I have no idea how many times I have sinned against my wife in 25 years of marriage. And if we do not figure out as a couple, and if you don't figure out in a marriage, how do we confront sin? How do we respond when confronted? And how do we repent? It's not going to work out. And in Matthew 18, he says, hey, when someone sins against you, hey, you go to them. If they listen, sweet. If they don't, bring some other people with you. Yo, not listening. He needs to repent. If he repents, sweet. If not, you bring the community and say, hey, look, right? That's these things. After teaching these things, he went to Galilee and went into the region of Judea and to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. I pray he can do some healing today. And when you're Judea, think about the place where the religious elite live. Think about the place where the scribes and Pharisees rule the roofs, where they control the conversation. And when you hear the other side of the Jordan, think about the place where John the Baptist had his ministry, where Jesus was baptized, and where King Herod was still the ruler. You know the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded because he called out his adultery and taking his brother's wife? So Pharisees came to test him, and the word implies they, they want to trip Jesus up, they want to get Jesus to say something wrong that they can use against him, or maybe even say something that ticks off Herod. <laughs> causing Herod to do to Jesus what he already done to John the Baptist and do their job for them, get rid of Jesus. 
They asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now we read that and think, they're simply asking Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason at all? I mean, isn't that how you read it? Actually, it doesn't say that. It literally says, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? And listen, the more I studied the Pharisees and what was a common understanding in the first century about divorce in Jesus' day, I came to find that in the time of Jesus, there had been much debate about what Deuteronomy 24 was all about. The only place in the Old Testament where you read about a certificate of divorce. A lot of debate about it. It reads this way. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. And by the time of Jesus, there have been years of debate, and basically there were two schools of thought about what? Oh, could you go back? Oh, you're good, you're good. Go back. <laughs> I love you, Josh. All right, you're good. It's like you're walking down the aisle of the grocery store, right? You, you did that little dance with somebody you don't know. All right. They're saying, hey, what does that mean by something indecent in her? And one school, Rabbi Hillel, taught that a man could divorce his wife for any cause. If she put too much salt in his food, if she burned his meal, if she was a quarrelsome wife, if she talked to men on the streets, if she cut her hair the wrong way, if she spoke disrespectfully to his parents, if he found someone who was more attractive. In other words, he could divorce his wife for any cause. The first century Jewish historian Josephus indicated that a divorce could be granted for any cause. He said, by the way, I divorced my wife for any cause. And so this rabbinical teaching, which had become widely accepted in Jesus' sake, especially by the people, right, was known as the any cause divorce. The other rabbinical school was a guy named Rabbi Shammai, and he said that you cannot just divorce your wife and just for any cause whatsoever and leave her all alone with no one to care for her? I mean, like, this goes against the very heart of God who is the father to the fatherless and the provider and the defender of those who cannot care for themselves to the orphan, to the widow, the outcast, the foreigner in the land. Understand, what the Pharisees are wanting to know is Jesus. Hey, Jesus, are you an any cause guy? Like, do you agree with that understanding of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, that a man can divorce his wife for any cause? And Jesus is going to answer them. But first, he wants to make clear to them what God's intent for marriage was from the very beginning. He says this, haven't you read? Yeah, that's a dig a little bit, right? Like, these are the scholars. But it's a great question, right? Haven't you read? How do you know what the Bible says if you don't read it? Right? You can't. You can't. By the way, tomorrow we are starting our new faith conference here in Bible reading plan. <laughs> I will be sending out a text. If you haven't got one already, here's the plan. I like to break our record of people doing it, right? You know, I think the record is maybe like 40 people in the church doing this plan together, sharing their thoughts together, what they're learning. It starts tomorrow. I encourage you to do just that. And, and you can, my phone number is 434 284-1057, or fill out a connection card if you're not on the list, and we'll make sure you get that email. Haven't you already applied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? See, if we want to know what God intends, we need to go back to the very beginning. Because this is what God intended. This is what God wanted. 
See, God didn't want this sin. God didn't want this brokenness. He didn't want this disease. He didn't want this divorce. God didn't want it. It wasn't the way he intended. Begin, the creator made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and two will become one flesh. Talk about a controversial passage today, right? So there are longer two but one. Therefore, God is joined together. Let no one separate. It's pretty clear, right? What is he saying? They said, Jesus, can you divorce your wife for any cause? His answer, don't get divorced. <laughs> I intended marriage to be permanent. I, I, I intended marriage to be a partnership, a suitable helper. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorcement and send her away? Again, they're asking about Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Hey, why did Moses say that? Like, if God always tended marriage to be this way, then why did Moses command us to give our wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Then Jesus said, Moses permitted. Right? God never commanded it. He permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Why did God permit a man to divorce his wife? Because what? Because their hearts were hard. That's sobering, isn't it? Now, I don't know of a, a case. There may be one out there somewhere. But I don't know of a case where divorces happen without having someone harden their heart. I mean, most divorces happen when, when someone decides that they are done. Uh, when someone refuses to repent and change because their heart is hard. Or because their hearts are hard because they are hardened by sin and they are living in sin. God's intent was for marriage to be permanent. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Yet divorce happened in Jesus' day all the way back to Moses' day. Question, but why did God allow this? I mean, if God is the one who created marriage, and he is, then who came up with divorce? Like, is it the devil? Is he the one that did this? I mean, it's complicated. But listen, in some ways, in some ways, divorce is a plan of God. Does that make sense? But why would God plan divorce? Because divorce is actually a way for God to protect people. Understand, God didn't plan divorce just so people could get out of an unhappy situation. Instead, he did it to protect someone. I mean, if not, they're just stuck forever. So there's this woman whose, whose husband does not want her anymore. And so now she's just left to fend for herself in a culture where that's very difficult to do. Nearly impossible. And God goes, hey, we're not going to let that happen. We're going to free her. We're going to give her another chance. You can't treat people that way. It's a whole different way of looking at divorce, isn't it? As God's way of protecting someone. Stay with me. So God comes in and he allows this, allows divorce because of the hardness of heart. Again, that culture was mostly men divorcing women. And God allows this so that someone can come in and take care of her. 
And do you see the heart of God in this? I do. Listen, we see this idea of divorce being about protecting somebody in Exodus chapter 21. Still with me? Good. And this text is actually about a slave who married her master, and then her her master married another woman, and God made it clear, hey, look, I know you married this other woman, but I want to let you know that you cannot deny your first wife food, clothing, and her marital rights. Sex, right? Because in that culture, women really wanted to have children, right? It showed a blessing from God. They were there to take care of her. Here's what it reads. If if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she's to go free without any payment of money. In his book, In Some Brewer Rights, at first glance, this text doesn't seem to apply to us at all, since we don't have polygamy and we don't marry slaves. And he adds, though in some marriages it may seem like it. (laughs) But we will see that it actually applies to all marriages. He goes on, polygamy was allowed in the Old Testament, and human nature being what it is, when a man took a second wife, he often neglected his first wife and favored a new one. This was especially likely if the first wife had been a slave before she was married. So the point of this law in Exodus 21 was to ensure that the first wife was treated fairly. It says that her husband would not be permitted to withhold food, clothing, or marital rights. If he did neglect any of these, she would be able to go free. That is, she could get a divorce. And the rabbis reasoned that if a slave had the right to divorce her husband if he didn't provide these needs, then surely a free wife had that same right, and surely if a woman had that right, then a man had that right as well. I understand the Old Testament provides very sensible laws about divorce. Each partner had to keep his or her four marriage vows. Feed, clothe, share marital rights, and be faithful. And listen, the basic principles behind these vows were that they had to supply material support, food and clothing, and physical affection, marital rights. He continues, Abusive situations were covered by these laws because physical abuse and emotional abuse are extreme forms of neglecting material support and physical affection. The only person, he writes, who could choose to enact a divorce was the victim. If your partner broke his or her marriage vows, you could choose to divorce them, or you could choose to forgive them and try to salvage the marriage. You could not divorce a partner simply because you wanted to. Yeah, you remember that passage from Ezekiel chapter 16? about the vows that God made? What were the vows he made? He made, God was feeding Judah. He was clothing Judah. He was loving Judah. He was faithful to Judah. The very same marriage vows that we see in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 24. Again, to the Pharisees' questions, why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce? Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I love this. Marriage was intended and designed by God from creation. And divorce at some level is intended to stop the pain and to stop the brokenness after the fall, to show that God is redemptive even in the midst of our hard-hearted brokenness. Jesus said in the beginning, it wasn't so. But because you have this tendency to abandon and abuse and neglect people, I'm going to step in and care for them and I'm going to allow them to get a new start away from you. 
Then Jesus says in verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another woman commits adultery. And here's where we need to keep in mind historical context and biblical context, okay? And what is the context? The context of his answer is a question that the Pharisees asked Jesus about Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause? Again, any cause was a technical term used by the followers of Rabbi Hillel and their understanding of what something indecent in her meant in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And like matter, except for sexual morality, was also a technical term used in the first century that the hearers understood that was used by the followers of Shammai and their understanding of what it means to have something indecent in her in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And I cannot stress enough how important it is to understand that Jesus' answer in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, is answering a specific question. Jesus, what is your take on Matthew 24, verse 1? Are you an any calls guy? Are you... Do you take the view that Matthew 24, verse 1 is talking about sexual morality is what indecent in her means? And Brewer writes this. I think I may have a slide for this. Do I? Yeah. If you have a phone, take a picture. Get the book. This is, so, this is good. I'm not making, you know, and, and, and I want to know. Amen. Okay. My goal today is not to get somebody off the hook, Right? My goal today is God's truth, right? And again, this is all like, this is new to me. It doesn't mean it's not true. Jesus used exactly the same words as the Shamites, except for sexual morality, in exactly the same context, a debate about Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, with exactly the same people, the Pharisees, in the same time and place, first century Palestine. So we have to include that Jesus and the Shamites meant the same thing. Next slide. There is only one valid type of divorce in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. That's what's prompted the question. Neither he nor the Shamites imply by this that there is only one valid type of divorce in the whole of Scripture. Okay? And listen, just because Jesus doesn't say everything, well, actually, he never, right? They expect that Jesus say everything but every subject is impossible, right? Some things are just assumed, Right? In that culture, they understood the debate. They understood what was going on here. And they would fill in the blanks automatically. Like if I would tell you, hey, do you think it's okay for a 16-year-old to drink? Raise your hand if you think it's okay. Okay? 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 Well, because we automatically filled in what? Alcohol. Did I say alcohol? Of course they need a drink. They got to be hydrated, right? But we automatically filled it in because we understand that. See, we're not sitting back to you. So where's <laughs> Yeah, I think they should drink. They need water and fluid, right? But you get my point? You know, someone in another culture may not understand that, right? We automatically fill in what everybody has commonly understood. And, and by the way, Paul does mention, right, another reason for divorce in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Hang with me. We're getting close. He says this, but if the believer leaves, someone's married, and they have an unbelieving husband, the believer leaves, let it, yes, thank you, dear. But 
if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. He said, hey, you're married and you're abandoned, right? Jesus didn't say that, but the whole of Scripture, right? Interestingly, if you read chapter 7, Paul talks in this chapter about a husband and wives have certain obligations and responsibilities within their marriage, much like we find in Exodus chapter 21. All this brings us to this awesome, beautiful diagram that I drew. Woo! Look at that. That's it. You got it, right? Drop the mic. Right? Okay. All right. You can tell that's mine, and I don't have to do anything fancier than that, right? So you got divorce. And I see in Scripture four grounds for divorce. Here's a script, key scripture. Deuteronomy 24.1, Exodus 21, 10 and 11, 1 Corinthians 7.15, Matthew 19.9, and then Ezekiel 16 and Jeremiah 3. We see God's divorce. And, and the crazy thing is we see these same things. It's like, wow, they're like connected. It's like, God, really, this is crazy. All right? Okay, so sexual morality, right? That's a given, right? And again, Matthew 19, Jesus is talking about sexual morality. He's answering the question. about, And I'm not, I'm not an any calls guy. Deuteronomy 24.1 is specifically talking about that passage which says something indecent in her. And that doesn't mean any cause. It means sexual immorality. Okay? Exodus 21.10.11, we see that, that, that I, I kind of call these like extreme neglect. Right? Um, material support, food and clothing. Right? Not making that up. Right? That's there. It's, it's crazy. Um, Physical affection, marital rights, and I would think that abuse is an extreme form of both of these, right? And then, Paul, we have abandonment. And, and, and here's the deal, here's the deal. Okay, I should have just shown this and that'd have been it. You come in, we done worship, God's awesome. That's it, that's it. This is good, I got it. This is new to me. I think it's, my best understanding at this point in time. And I think it shows the heart of God. Now, if you've seen this and you think, I'm glad I came to church because now I see another way out. You missed a point. You missed a point. You know what? Dinner was late last night. <laughs> he wouldn't let me buy that outfit. If that is what you take away, you have so missed a point and so missed the heart of our God. The worst about protecting people, right, from screaming neglect or if they have been experienced sexual morality from their partner. Again, you don't have to divorce for these things, okay? And disciples said to him, if this is the situation between, and just leave that drawing up there, forget the rest of the slides until we get to the other statements and I'll tell you those slides. So anyhow, <laughs> just don't pay attention to what I'm saying. Okay, disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, is it better not to marry? I mean, if I have to stay married, even if I've grown out of love with them, even if I'm no longer happy, even though he's gained 25, 30 pounds, even if they're not the same person, even if it gets hard sometimes, even if it's not as fun as I thought it'd be, Jesus replies, not everyone can accept these words. Only those to whom it's been given. In other words, marriage is a big deal. It's a forever deal, Right? Laurie and I always tell people, students, or kids, if you're getting married, is that person a 50-year guy or girl, right? Can you see yourself with them for 50 years, right? You know, because you're going in for the long haul, right? What God is doing together, let man not separate, right? 
Okay, a few summary statements that are in your outline. And, and, uh, and I think these are important. I hit these quick, but I've said so much. Boom, boom, boom. Do we have those? Uh-oh. I think he's flipping. Yes! I'm sorry, Josh. Hey, hey, you can still volunteer to be in the booth, all right? I know I will abuse you, but I apologize. All right, these are important because I just like, all right, okay. Here we go. God wants to design marriage to be permanent. Marriage is the most powerful crucible for discipleship because if it's permanent, you can't get away from it. And marriage forces you to look at yourself. And sometimes we can run from things. Marriage, if you stay, wow, I really am an idiot. And I really need to deal with this. I just can't run away from it, right? God is more concerned with our holiness than he is with our happiness. Okay? Next summary statements. God has allowed, he never mandated divorce for four specific reasons. Because people's hearts were and still can become hardened. All right? Divorce. Because of the hurt, pain, and damage it causes, but he never hates divorced people. Amen? Never. Divorce was actually designed to protect people, especially women in the time of Christ. Divorce, even for non-biblical reasons, is not the unforgivable sin. Okay? God is not pleased with the attitude of, yes, my divorce is not biblical or what God wants, but I know that he can redeem it later. Well, you know what? I'll just sin and repent. <laughs> I know it's wrong, but I'll do it. Pray for forgiveness. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how much God's going to bless that one. Okay? Um, the healthiest second marriages are those who are really saddened and repentant over their divorce. You know, owning their slice. You know, maybe it's 5%, 10%, but really saddened, broken. Well, I wish that didn't end. We make vows before God and it didn't work out and I repent of my part and I want my new marriage to be one honoring to you. Um, the restoration of our marriage should always be the first goal. When that happens, it's a beautiful thing and a powerful testimony. I tell you, it is a powerful testimony when a man or a woman forgives their spouse of some grave sin and then rebuilds that marriage. I don't know if there's a greater picture of God's love for us than that. Matter of fact, God wrote a whole book in the Old Testament called the book of Hosea that is that exact picture of a man forgiving and bringing back his wife. And, and, and right here, God intends for marriages to be lived out in authentic Christian community so that we can have conversations about marriage before the bottom falls out, right? So, we don't just sit in people's living rooms. Well, you shouldn't get a divorce. Well, where were the conversations three years ago when things started to get difficult, right? And see, authentic community allows for real conversations. But listen, real conversations are M-E-S-S-Y, right? Real conversations are messy, you know? And, and we got to be able to honestly listen and not jump out of the gates and start judging people. I'm going to make this statement here. You know, church needs to be a safe place to talk about painful and difficult things, right? It needs to be a safe place, right? Because where else are we going to talk about it and have people love us and, and work with us? And just one more thing as we lead into our, our closing song, and I appreciate your attention, and I know it's a lot of stuff, and it may take a while to absorb it. Um, 
know what the cool thing is? God didn't divorce Judah. He hung in there for me and for you. And through Judah came David. Through David came Jesus. See, Jeremiah didn't just talk about the divorce. He talked about, in Jeremiah 31, he says, you know what? I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Judah. Not like the one I made before that they broke, but I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. I'm going to put my spirit in them. Everybody's going to know me. And I will forgive their sins and remember them no more. See, God stuck it out for you and for me. And sometimes we need to stick it out. You know, it could be difficult. And, and we want you to know that, hey, if, if you want to continue a conversation, you know, I'm available, the leaders are available. And we're going to sing the song. I really think it's so, it's a perfect song to sing right now. It, because, behold, it's called, but the line, behold what love can do, right? God's love for us, God's love for Judah, even though she broke her vows, he forgave her. And because he forgave her and did not send her away, you and I are here today, saved and redeemed by God. And we sing the song, and as we're singing, you can feel free to grab your communion. We have our communion off at the various stations. You'll see that, individual cups, and then, we'll cu- and then when the song breaks, I'll come up and lead us into communion together. Guys, would you stand as I pray? God, we love you, and and God, I pray right now for your word, for your truth. God, I thank you that you love us and your desire, your heart is to protect us. And God, I pray for everyone in this room. I pray for anyone who's been through a divorce, God, that you would just comfort them and lead them into your truth. I pray for every marriage in this room. I pray for every marriage in our church, God, that that, uh, we can live out our marriage in community. And God, we see such a great example in you of what love can do. Love covers a multitude of sins. Amen.